The Old Testament reading is Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Deuteronomy 4, 1 through 8. And this is the infallible and the inerrant word of God. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? And now let's turn to the New Testament, Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. And this is our sermon text this morning. And if you are visiting this morning, uh, we are working our way through Paul's epistle to the Romans. And this morning we are at Romans 3, verses 1 through 8. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you are a fan of classical music, and if you are a fan of Johann Sebastian Bach, you probably know that at the end of his uh, written uh, compositions, Uh, Bach would inscribe uh, the letters S-D-G after the music that he wrote. And these letters stand for the Latin phrase, Soli Deo Gloria, which means glory to God alone. Glory to God alone. Uh, Bach wanted his music to bring praise only uh, to the Lord, to God. I recently listened to a podcast uh, about classical music uh, a couple months ago, and uh, the host uh, said that 
There are some people who virtually worship uh, Bach uh, because of his musical genius, but that's not how the composer would have wanted it. He wanted his music uh, to give glory to God. And as I'm sure you know, this phrase, soli deo gloria, this was used to express one of the wonderful truths that were championed uh, by the reformers during the Protestant Reformation. And that is that God does all things in our redemption in order that he receives, not us, but that God receives all the credit, all the praise, all the glory for our salvation. And of course, we can extend that truth to all that God does, everything that the Lord does, his works of creation, his works of providence, his works of redemption, his works of judgment, all that he does, all that he will do, will be for the glory, the praise of his name. Just like Bach wrote SDG at the end of his compositions, we might write SDG at the end of this passage uh, that uh, we have just heard from Romans because the main point that the apostle wants to make here in these verses is that no matter how much the unfaithfulness, the unrighteousness of man may abound, God works through all of that in order to exalt his greatness and his glory. And so this passage is about how God brings glory to himself in his works of salvation even through the unrighteousness and the sin of man. And Paul shows us two ways in which that is true. First of all, he says, he shows us that God is faithful to keep his promises even when his people are unfaithful. And secondly, God uses even sin and evil to magnify uh, his greatness. So first of all, God is faithful to keep his promises even when his people are faithless. The place for us to begin this morning as we approach this passage is to put ourselves back into the flow of the Apostle Paul's uh, reasoning, his arguments in this section of Romans. Uh, so Paul's burden uh, from about the first half of chapter one to the, uh, or the second half of chapter one to the first half of chapter three, uh, his burden is to show that all people, all people, Jew and Gentile, are spiritually and morally corrupt, are, are sinful, and are under the just condemnation of God. And therefore, all people, Jew and Gentile, are in the same need for that salvation that Jesus Christ came to accomplish for us. And in chapter 2, and in our passage this morning, Paul's focus is not on the Gentiles, but his focus continues to be on his own people, the Jewish people. And he is making the case that despite their status as God's covenant people, despite the fact that the Jews are the descendants of Abraham, that they have the mark of God's covenant of circumcision, that they possess the law and all of that, despite that, just like the Gentiles, they too, because of sin, are under the righteous condemnation of God and in need of salvation. In chapter 2, in verses 25 through 29, the last uh, section of chapter 2, uh, the apostles at pains to tell his fellow Israelites that, uh, that they cannot trust in their circumcision. Uh, they cannot trust in their status of, as being the descendants of Abraham uh, for their salvation. These things cannot save them. Paul says that a true Jew is one who has been circumcised in heart. 
by the supernatural work of the Spirit of God. And so uh, these external things by themselves, these external things such as circumcision, physical descent from Abraham, possessing uh, the law of God, the covenant of God, these things cannot save anybody. It is only that supernatural work of grace in the hearts that produces faith and that faith in the Lord that brings salvation. And so only the grace of Jesus Christ that is received in the heart by faith will bring salvation to a person, whether he is a Gentile or whether he is a Jew. And so essentially Paul is saying to the Romans, uh, the same thing that he says to the Galatians in Galatians 5, 6, he says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now remember, Paul is having a kind of imaginary argument or dialogue with a hypothetical but typical Jewish person who did not embrace Jesus Christ as his savior from sin. And he imagines that this unbelieving Jew hearing what he says about a circumcision and how that avails the Jewish people nothing apart from faith. And he can hear this Jewish person saying to him, Paul, if that is the case, if salvation and righteousness are ultimately a matter of the heart and do not have anything to do with my being a descendant of Abraham, if that is the case, then what good is it to be a Jew? Is there any value at all in my circumcision? Is it worth nothing? Are God's covenant promises to his people Israel meaningless after all? And Paul says in response, no, 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 that's not what I'm saying. I affirm with all my heart that our people, the Jews, have been granted by God incredible privileges as his covenant people. And so he says in verses 1 and 2, he says, Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. Much in every way. He goes on to say in verse 2, To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Paul says at the top of the list... The chief blessing, the greatest advantage that God has given to the people of Israel is that he has entrusted them with his word, with his word. The Jews possess the Holy Scriptures, the word of God. And in those scriptures, they possess the promises of God. They possess that covenant promise that God made to his people. I will be your God. You will be my people forever. But, but. That promise of God that he made to his people Israel in the scriptures that he would be their God, they would be his people. That called for faith on the part of the Israelites. That demanded a response of faith, of turning to the Lord by faith in the Messiah in order for that promise to be realized. And this faith was not just a general belief. The faith that was called for was not just a general, generic belief in the God who reveals himself in the word, but specifically the faith that was called for by the scriptures, by God in his word, was faith in the Messiah, in the Christ, in the Son of God, who is ultimately the one who is revealed in the scriptures, in the oracles of God. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees. The Pharisees, just like the, the Jew that Paul is speaking to, they possessed the word of God. They had the oracles of God. But remember what Jesus said to them? He said, you search the scriptures because you think of that. You think that in them you have eternal life. 
And it is they that bear witness about me. They bear witness, they bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Life was not to be found in the scriptures apart from Christ, but it is only as by faith Christ comes to the one who reads the scriptures and hears the scriptures. As that person comes to Jesus, as he is revealed in the word, is there life in the scriptures. And Paul is saying the same thing here. He is saying to the unbelieving Jew, yes, it is a glorious privilege that you possess the oracles of God. It is an advantage. It is good But you make that privilege worthless. You bring it to naught if you do not have faith in the Christ who is revealed in the oracles of God. The Christ who has come in the person of Jesus. And that's that's what Paul is talking about then in verse 3 when he says, What if some were unfaithful? Specifically what Paul has in mind there when he says, What if some were unfaithful? Are those Jews in his day that refused to come to Christ by faith and refuse to believe in Jesus as the Son of God, as the Messiah. They were unfaithful to the Scriptures. They did not believe the Scriptures. So some were unfaithful. Paul says some, but he's really being a little diplomatic. Most, most of the Jews in Paul's day, most of the Jews today have not come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, before we continue to, Paul, uh, to follow Paul's line of thought here, there is a point of application uh, that we shouldn't miss, and that is this, that just as the privileges that God gave to the people of Israel uh, were only true blessings as the Jewish people embraced Christ by faith, so all the privileges that are yours as a member of the church of Jesus Christ are only true blessings as you embrace by faith uh, Christ. Um, Are you baptized? Uh, Do you take part in the Lord's Supper? Uh, Do you sit under the preaching of the Word of God? That is wonderful. Those are all good things. But if you do not entrust yourself to Christ... If you have not submitted yourself to him as your Lord and believed in him as your Savior, if your hope is not in Christ as the one and the only one who can deliver you from bondage to sin, from the guilt of sin, if Christ is not your Savior, if you do not have faith, all of these things, baptism, the Lord's Supper, even the preaching that you sit under, will not avail you. By themselves, these things cannot save you. They must be met with faith. But if your hope is in Jesus, and I trust that it is, if your hope is in Jesus, then these things are true blessings. The sacraments, the word of God, these are the very things that Christ uses to comfort you, to encourage you, to strengthen you, uh, to build you up in the hope that you have in Christ as your Savior. So let's continue now to hear uh, Paul's, uh, follow Paul's uh, line of reasoning here. He says in verse 3, What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Does not the fact that most of the Jews in Paul's day, uh, the fact that they did not place their trust in Jesus as the Christ, does that somehow prevent God? Does that keep God from fulfilling the promises that he made to his people? Promises for their salvation. Well, for Paul, this idea that the Lord, 
the God who created all things, who is omnipotent, who is almighty. This idea that God could somehow be hindered or prevented from fulfilling his purposes and his promises by the unbelief of man, this idea was so abhorrent to Paul. It was so repugnant to Paul that he uses his favorite expression to just to show just how he absolutely rejects that notion. Uh, that expression in Greek is me genoito. And that phrase is translated in various ways in our English versions and the English Standard Version, which I'm reading from. It is by no means, by no means, uh, God forbid, certainly not, of course not. Uh, maybe if Paul uh, was fluent in American slang, he would have said, no way, Jose, absolutely not. But this is Paul's way of completely rejecting such an idea. The idea that God's faithfulness to his promises depends upon the faithfulness of man. Paul says, by no means. Now, as we go on in Romans, we'll learn just how it is that God fulfills and will fulfill his promises to his people Israel. Uh, First of all, there is always a remnant of those Jews who came and come to Jesus Christ for faith or for salvation. Uh, Paul himself is exhibit A. So there's always a remnant of believing uh, Jewish people. But not only that, and, and we're getting way ahead of ourselves now, but later in Romans we'll see how God does have a purpose. He does have a plan to bring the Jewish people as a people uh, to salvation in Christ one day. But we'll get to that uh, someday, not today. Now, there's a truth here that we as Christians can take to heart. And that is this, is that as a believer in Christ, you are called to, um, to, to, to trust in him. That's what it means to believe in him. You're called to trust in him and you are called to obey his word. Uh, trust and obey. You are called to, um, to be faithful. But here's the comfort. Your salvation ultimately it does not depend upon, it is not based upon, it does not hinge on your faithfulness or your steadfastness, but your salvation, your eternal security, the hope that you have that one day you will be brought into God's kingdom. You're already in his kingdom, but one day you will be brought into glory forever. That hope depends upon the character of God, that he is faithful, that he is steadfast, that he is constant. That he does not change. Uh, We can tweak Paul's language here a little bit uh, to apply it to you and me as believers in Christ. Uh, What if you sometimes are unfaithful? What if you are unfaithful sometimes? Will your faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. God forbid. And so your hope as a Christian is rooted in the unchanging character and the promise of God. He will, the word promises, He will bring to completion that good work that he has begun in you. And he will do so that even even though at times you will stumble, you will fail, you will prove yourself to be faithless. But God is faithful. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, beginning in verse 5, there's something of a transition in Paul's argumentation. Uh, 
Uh, the fact that Paul has just demonstrated that the faithfulness of God cannot be frustrated or hindered by the faithlessness of his people leads him to address what is really a more a fundamental principle in God's dealings with man, and that is this, that God uses even sin and evil to magnify his greatness. God uses even sin and evil to magnify his greatness. And that's our second point this morning. It's as though Paul has said this uh, as he's uh, writing these verses. Um, While I'm on the topic, while I'm on the topic of the faithfulness of God, how it cannot be prevented uh, by the faithlessness of men. I've got a few words to say to my opponents who have twisted my preaching to accuse me of saying things that I have not said. Now, before we go on and follow what Paul's thinking is here, we need to understand, um, in order for us to understand what he says in verses 5 through 8, we have to understand something about the gospel that Paul preached, uh, the gospel that he proclaimed uh, in his day, and that is his gospel, which is our gospel. This is the declaration that our salvation is entirely due to the power, to the grace of a sovereign God. We cannot do anything to make ourselves right with God. We cannot do anything to atone for our sin. Our nature has completely disabled us. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. We are spiritually helpless. We cannot do anything. We cannot contribute in any way for our salvation. And so if our sins are to be forgiven... If if we are to be counted as righteous in the sight of God, if we are to be saved, we need a Savior who can not only bear the penalty of the law on our behalf, in our place, for our sin, but we need a Savior who can also give us His perfect righteousness as a gift. And of course, the gospel is the declaration that God has provided for us in Jesus Christ just such a Savior. We have in Christ the one who takes away our sin and who gives us his righteousness freely as a gift received by faith. And this gospel that Paul preached, this gospel that is is preached today, this tells us something about God and his dealings with man or his dealings with us specifically as his people, something that defies all human logic and reasoning when it comes to matters of salvation. By nature, we think this way. We think, and this is by nature, naturally, we think I'm saved, at least in part, I'm saved on the basis of my righteousness, my goodness, my works. And wrapped up in that thought is this idea. If God is glorified in my salvation, certainly he is glorified in my salvation, then my righteousness and works that contribute to my salvation also must bring him glory. That's the natural human way of thinking about salvation. But the gospel says no. The righteousness and the works and the goodness of sinful man count for absolutely nothing. These things bring no glory to God. In fact, in fact, in our salvation, God is not glorified by our supposed righteousness and goodness and works but he is glorified through our sin and our unrighteousness. And God is glorified through our sin, through our unrighteousness, in our salvation, because in our salvation, he has overcome these things in order to make us righteous, to forgive us, 
It is because of the greatness of God's grace that he is glorified in our redemption. Again, our own natural human reasoning about good works and the righteousness that we think that we are able to produce on our own apart from Christ goes like this. Where our works increase, where our righteousness increase, grace abounds all the more. But the logic of the gospel turns this completely inside out. The gospel says where sin increased, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's Romans 5.20. And so God is greatly glorified in the salvation of great sinners. And this gospel of the, of the free and the sovereign grace of God, this has always been an offense to the pride of man. It has always been a stumbling block to the natural way that we think about God and salvation and righteousness. I mean, think about this. Here's a little thought experiment. There may be, and I'm sure there are, um, convicted murderers on death row who have genuinely, genuinely repented of their heinous crimes and sins and have come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so they are bound for heaven. But their victims whom they killed, they may have died in their sin and unbelief. And so they are lost. Now that's hard for us to swallow, isn't it? That's kind of hard to take. That is so contrary to our natural moral sensibility that it's difficult for us to accept. But what does God say in his word? He says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so the gospel defies all human reasoning about salvation. And when the opponents of Paul, when they heard this gospel of the free and the sovereign grace of God, that God is actually glorified in the salvation of the unrighteous and the salvation of sinners. The opponents of Paul accused him of saying that unrighteousness and sin, therefore, are actually somehow good things. They said that what Paul is saying is that sin and evil are actually good because they bring God glory. You can hear the false accusations and what Paul writes here in verses five. Uh, in verse five, he says, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Again, Paul finds this idea so abhorrent that he says, by no means, God forbid. And then he simply refutes the idea by appealing to a truth that the Jews knew was axiomatic a truth that was indisputable, and that is that God is going to judge the world in righteousness. And so he says, then how could God judge the world? And Paul vehemently rejects the notion that somehow the gospel he preached makes sin and evil good things. Rather, by, rather than dignifying such arguments or such ideas that were so abhorrent to Paul, Ideas such that God should reward the liar or that we should do evil, that good may come. Paul simply says at verse eight, he says their condemnation is just. Those who accused 
Paul of teaching such absurd and blasphemous things, Paul says, they're already condemned, these people who accuse me of these things, and their condemnation is just. And what these verses are affirming here is that evil is truly evil. Sin is truly sinful. There is nothing good in evil. There is nothing righteous in sin. In itself, evil is the absolute contradiction of all who God is as holy and righteous. And therefore, it is evil. And there can never be anything good that comes from evil. Evil can only beget evil. But sin and evil exist in a world that is under the absolute rule of a God who is just, who is wise, who is holy, and who is almighty. And the glory, the glory of God's sovereign rule over all things, especially over this fallen world, is that he is able to use even that which is evil in itself. God can use that which is even evil in itself to bring about that which is truly good and righteous and holy. God accomplishes his holy and redemptive purposes, even through that which is evil. Uh, This is the lesson that Joseph learned after a lifetime of seeing how God worked through the evil circumstances of his life uh, to bring him much blessing. And you remember at the end of Genesis, he said to his brothers who were guilty of selling him into slavery, he said, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as it is this day. And nowhere, nowhere in the history of the world was this wonderful truth that God uses even evil to bring good and to advance his holy and righteous and loving purposes. Nowhere was this more manifested than in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. You remember on the day of Pentecost when Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, when he preached to the Jews who were assembled there in Jerusalem on that day, he said this to them about the crucifixion. He said, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, there never was and there never will be and there never could be an act that was more wicked, more heinous, more evil, more depraved than what those men did to Jesus. That they murdered, they crucified, not just an innocent man, but the sinless Son of God, the incarnate Lord in the flesh. Peter says Jesus was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What they did was evil. And yet, God had a purpose for this, even this ultimate expression of evil. And that purpose was that in dying this unjust death, Jesus would in that death take upon himself the sins of the world so that you and I and all who come to him by faith can be forgiven and receive the gift of eternal life. And so this is what God has done in the cross. He has brought about the greatest good of salvation by using the greatest wickedness of lawless men murdering the incarnate Son of God 
And this was God's plan and purpose all along. Peter says in verse 23 in Acts chapter 2, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And so God does work even through evil and sin to accomplish his holy, his redemptive purposes for us. Now, what does this mean for you as a believer in Christ? Well, what it does not mean is this. It does not mean that the fact that God works through sin and evil to bring about good, this is not a license for you to sin. This is not a license for you to pursue unrighteousness. If you think that way, you are basically saying the very same things that Paul said, bring condemnation. That is, let us do evil that good may come. That is not the application for us as believers in Christ. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been saved from sin. You have been saved from the guilt of sin. You have been saved from the dominion of sin over you. And you are called to live a life of holiness, of righteousness, of obedience to the word of God. Hebrews 12, 24 tells us that we are to strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. However, however, there is a comfort here for you and me in knowing that God works even through sin and evil to advance his loving and saving purposes for us. And that is... When we fail, when we sin, we know that we have not, that we cannot frustrate God's purposes for our salvation. This is a high mystery, but a wonderful truth. Paul goes on to say in Romans 8.28, For those who love God, all things work for good. Notice he says, all things work for good. There is no exception. God causes even your sin, your failures, as a believer in Jesus Christ. He causes even those to work together for your ultimate good, your ultimate blessing, your salvation. And that is the comfort that we have as those who belong to Jesus Christ, that God works in the way that he does, working even through evil to bring about good. And so as those who belong to Jesus Christ by faith, as those who are saved by his grace, those three letters that Bach wrote at the end of his compositions can be written uh, across the entirety of our lives. SDG, Soli Deo Gloria. At the end of the day, our lives will be all for the glory of God because of his grace to us and saving us from sin. Let's pray.